We have Reverend Elizabeth Hoost with us this morning from um, Faith Community Reformed in Stickney, um, just south of us a little bit. Our brothers and sisters in Stickney were willing to share her with us this morning. Bob and I had the privilege of meeting with um, Elizabeth to, um, to talk about um, kids and youth, which is an area of expertise for Elizabeth. She's, um, she, she's um, in, in ministry, doing youth ministry um, at, at Faith Community Reform in Stickney. She's also, in a few months, will be the Reverend Dr. Elizabeth Poos when she finishes her, her doctoral work at um, TED's Trinity Evangelical Seminary. Um, and so when Bob and I were meeting with her, I think we, we both said aloud at some point while we were meeting, you got to come preach. And she said, okay. So we figured out a date, and so we're really, um, we're really grateful to her for joining us this morning. Um, so welcome. Thanks. It's such a delight to be here with you today. As we were talking about when it was going to work for me to come, I am almost done with the dissertation. Like, within weeks, I'll be defending it. And I know you're curious. What is it on? Uh, it's on never been married women and their experiences of belonging in the church. So, there you go. Uh, would you pray with me? Father God, we just come before you today and we give you praise for being the God who goes before us. Lord, we pray today that you just hum us in like the edge of a garment, going before us and behind us and walking with us in these moments. Lord, I pray today that you bring to mind the ways in which you are working within our story. May you be exalted. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So I firmly believe in audience participation after 15 years in youth ministry. So what I'd like for you to do is if you have read or seen or heartily enjoyed, if not loved, some of the great stories that I'm about to read, I want you to stand up, okay? And just keep standing. So most of these are movies. So if you're not a real bibliophile, there you go. Okay, so Miracle on 34th Street. The Sound of Music. White Christmas. Mighty Ducks. Finding Nemo. Spider-Man. Batman. Anne of Green Gables. The Little Mermaid. Star Wars. Mary Poppins. Singing in the Rain, and my personal favorites, The Muppet Movies, The Chronicles of Narnia, and Princess Bride. So uh, if you, uh, if there are any of you still sitting, I don't think I see any. So I would ask if you had another story that you loved, or (laughs) I'm so glad none of you are just stubborn and contrary and just decided to keep sitting anyway. But look around. This is a group of people who love stories. Look at your congregation. Look around. These are people who love stories. Isn't that great news? So in your bulletin, our call to worship this morning, we read a passage of scripture. And I would like for you to read it with me before you sit back down. Psalm 78. It's on the front of your bulletin. My people... Listen to my teaching. Listen to what I say. I will speak using stories. 
I will tell secret things from long ago. We have heard them and known them by what our ancestors have told us. We will not keep them from our children. We will tell those who come later about the praises of the Lord. We will tell about his power and the miracles he has done. The Lord made an agreement with Jacob and gave teachings to Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach to their children, that their children would know them, even their children not yet born, and they would tell their children. So they would all trust God and would not forget what he had done, but would obey his commands. You can be seated. I love stories. Funny stories, hopeful stories, creative, wistful stories, witty ones. Stories that take you on a journey to save the day, to find a friend, to right a wrong, to redeem what's been lost, and to discover a new and wonderful place. Along the way, the hero always finds unexpected friends love, and their true purpose. (laughs) Those are my favorite kinds of stories. But my favorite ones also include, I'll be honest, happy endings, where you can root for the lovable underdog, and where your heart starts to beat fast in your chest, and you say, that could have been me. I have a pretty vivid imagination, And when it's set well in a story, I am there with the characters to the point that I get really into the story. The best example is when I was in college. I went to a movie with some friends called Castaway. Uh, And it's the one where Tom Hanks is stranded on an island and with just a volleyball for a friend that he's named Wilson. And it was the scene where Tom is on the raft that he has built. And he is preparing to escape. And you see Wilson, his volleyball, begin to fall out of the raft and is floating on the water. And he's searching for the volleyball. Wilson! Wilson! He's looking everywhere for this volleyball. And out loud in the theater, I go, it's over there! (laughs) Better yet, I didn't even yell, it's over there. I yelled, he's over there! Like, the volleyball was a human being. And my friends, they all turn and look at me, including everybody else in the theater, because I didn't even realize I'd said it out loud. (laughs) They all turn and they look at me and they make one very important decision. They said, we have always got to take her to movies. (laughs) It's way more fun. So, (laughs) but I just get really into it. So to this day, when I'm reading a book or watching a movie, I am there in the fire swamp, dodging rodents of unusual size and gazing off the cliffs of insanity saying, he didn't fall? Inconceivable. I'm staring at the gates of Mordor with Sam and Frodo, wondering how did we get here? What type of tale have we fallen into? I'm tromping across the field with Anne and Marilla, and she's, Marilla's waiting on the porch of Green Gables. Or the other hockey team is winning, and it's time for the flying V, and my heart cries, quack, quack, quack. I imagine myself with them in the highs 
and in the lows. And I come by loving stories honestly. My dad is an amazing storyteller. Some of my favorites as a kid, favorite memories as a kid was curling up with him in his chair and he would read the stories to us out loud uh, with all of the voices. The characters of Willy Wonka and Narnia came alive. Edmund and Lucy weren't just characters, they were friends. Aslan, the great lion, was on the move. And I looked for him in unexpected places in our world all the time. You just never know. One of my favorite passages from Prince Caspian is when everyone else is sleeping. Lucy wakes up and she hears a voice calling her name. She tiptoes through the trees that are actually dancing. And she sees him in the moonlight You would swear it was a stone lion, except for the swishing of the tail. She didn't, she never stopped to think of whether it was friendly or not. She rushed to him, and as she felt her heart would burst if she wasted a moment, she wrapped her arms around him, around his neck, and she could feel her face and her hands just burying into the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. And then she gazed up into his wise face, and he said, Welcome, child. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Our understanding of how big God is grows as we do. I found as I grew my understanding of the stories being lived out in front of me grew as well. I grew up on a farm in west central Illinois, and around our large dining room table that my mom and dad actually built were stories that have been told and lived by friends and neighbors and family. And most of them were true. Some of them were a little better than true. But they all the while were framing that in the midst of struggle, God was still faithful. The loved ones and welcomed ones would come and recount their story full of struggle and success, despair and dreaming, usually over a cookie and some coffee. And it was the place where their story, they would share their story, and in the midst of that, they would oftentimes hear a new story, a story of hope, of a way to go from here. A teenager. As a teenager, I heard these stories unravel, and I didn't realize what a gift I'd been given. Marriages were prayed over and mended at that table. A new story began, began for several families. I recall of one incredible, determined single mom who spent hours at that table with my mom, who helped her learn how to study and see hope for her future, for her, and for her little girls. Young parents sat at that table, grieving the loss of a child. 
And they struggled with the picture of trusting God at that table. Where is your God in this? And yet at that table, God began a new story within them, a story that they're still living today. Business owners at a dead end dreamed new dreams at that table. And then they found new stories, new possibilities for where they could go from here. Um, Young men just beginning their lives, their professional lives of figuring out who they were going to be as men of God and men of integrity, that is a place where they discovered their story. Through the good and the difficult and the laughter and the tears, those stories were more poignant than any we could have ever made up. My parents weren't perfect, and they were not counselors. They were just friends. They were farmers. <laughs> they were on the receiving end many of the time. Them, they too were finding new stories along the way. They were just friends, loving others and revealing God's glory, and they're not always easy story. God grew as I grew, and I saw what was possible through those stories. And even in the broken and really messed up people, how God could use them and God could be known in their stories. As God grew, so did my stories of the Bible. And there are some messed up people in the Bible. There are some serious stories in the Bible that are just a train wreck. And talk you can see yourself in them a lot of times, but then you can also feel pretty good about yourself and your family. Like you read these stories and you're like, my kids haven't killed each other yet. I haven't passed my wife off as my sister, you know? (laughs) I mean, these are the types of stories you can read. This is just in the first book. (laughs) So you can read those and be like, okay, God used those people. He can use my story too. And I can see how Joseph's siblings sold him to the gypsies, I mean Egyptians. And (laughs) it was, I was with those disciples as they kept asking Jesus stupid questions and not getting it. I can imagine Jesus' siblings were like, dude, keep talking like this and we are all toast. I'm sure they talked like surfers. (laughs) I was in prison with Paul and Silas in Acts 16 for talking too much, for telling stories of Jesus, seeing people begin, they helped people to see a better story than the one that they were living. Let's read a portion of that story today. We find it in Acts 16. I'm going to read it from the translation you guys have here too. One day, we were going to a place of prayer. We met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope for making money was gone, 
they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. (laughs) They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful to us as Romans to adopt or to observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing, ordered to be beaten with rods. After they were given, after they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Now, think about this with me. Paul and Silas essentially have just been thrown in jail, beaten severely, because of telling about Jesus, about telling stories that they refused to stop telling. As they were put into the stocks, we hear this. Following these instructions, they put him into the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, prison in those times wasn't just a waiting room. Prison in those times was an indefinite place where they could stay weeks or years. Being put into the inner cells after being beaten with an inch of their lives, they were waiting judgment with all of the others that were there. In this waiting room of a prison, it wasn't a place where you wanted to live. Slavery and death and vindication were your only three options in this place. They were the popular answers of the time. And the first two were most likely. But As you waited, you didn't know if you were going to be there just a few days or maybe months upon months to even find out what your crime was, let alone your punishment. You'd get up every morning hoping to see your family again, wondering, is this the day the verdict will come? In this place, there was no modern plumbing. The scent would have been so rankedly repugnant, you could taste it. In the dark, dank shadows, you could hear things scurrying and sighs of those with you, unsavory characters of all sorts. The jailer was instructed to put Paul and Silas under heavy guard because they were the dangerous ones. They didn't look dangerous. They didn't act dangerous. Perhaps it was their stories the bigwigs were afraid of. Paul and Silas were respectful and kind as they were being processed. I can imagine that they looked at the jailer in the eyes with an absence of anger, agitation, and disdain. After all, their model was Jesus. Their goal was to do everything like Jesus. And they'd watched Jesus be processed so that they would have done it in the same way. The jailer had looked into the eyes of many prisoners and had learned to harden himself to pleas and angry remarks, questions about sentences or family, even with his own family just beyond the walls. The jailer's home would be adjacent to the jail itself. But the presence of these men could not be ignored. The magistrates were emphatic, more so than normal, almost nervous. What did they know? Midnight came. The town was in bed, except for Paul and Silas, who were praying 
and singing. Scripture says this, following these instructions, he put him in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. After midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. (laughs) In the midst of the darkness, I wonder if the other prisoners would join in with the choruses. Some maybe out of tune, some robust. (laughs) And some were just like, stop singing, it's the middle of the night. It was this warm, tangible light that had broken into where darkness had been. Then it happened. Earthquake! We read in scripture that it says, suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Through the rubble and the dust that took every bit to set, there are bits of it flying everywhere that would have to take time to settle. All of these buildings are made out of rock. And as the dust begins to settle, something miraculous happens. Their chains fell off. Moonlight began to stream in through the cracks of the walls. With an earthquake, the jailer would awake with a start, wouldn't you? (laughs) Suddenly, with an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and chains, everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. To wake up from an earthquake and know that all of your prisoners that you're in charge of have just, like, been able to escape would be terrifying. So he leapt from the bed, ran barefoot with sword in hand to see how many prisoners had escaped. When he saw the doors of the prison swinging open, he felt a rush of hopelessness wash over him like a bucket of cold water. He felt so trapped and doomed. He reached for his sword up to kill himself before the Roman magistrates could, because that's what would happen. There was no hope. And then, through the darkness, he heard a voice, don't harm yourself, for we are all here. Another translation says, don't harm yourself, for we are all still here. (laughs) Like after a bad dream that you wake up from and discover that you don't have to live it. (laughs) They said it again. We're all still here. (laughs) The jailer called for lights and rushing in, he fell down tumbling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought (laughs) them outside and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? We're all still here. Who were these men? Why had they stayed? The jeweler fell at their feet in the doorway. What do I have to do to be saved? Then they told him about Jesus. And they told his whole family about the greatest story ever told. The story of Jesus they could join in. It says in scripture... 
They answered, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced and for that he had become a believer in God. It wasn't just him. His entire family was awake with him in this moment. (laughs) As they told about Jesus and about who Jesus was and the story that they could join in, the jailer took Paul and Silas and cleaned their wounds. He would have done this in his own kitchen because it was connected to the jail. It would have been the other other only other room besides the cells themselves. So at his own kitchen table, he's cleaning the wounds of these prisoners. Then the whole family was baptized. They came back and had a feast in the middle of the night. A man who was almost dead and a family who would have been in an instant been destitute, homeless, and fatherless. Instead of weeping and sleeping, they were celebrating. You've all had, we're all still here moments. Glimpses of how life could have been different and then the story that we're living, we're heading toward. We're still here. And it's in our still here-ness, stories can be told. It's in our still here-ness that we can choose a better story. Not one of fear and playing it safe, but in the still here-ness, we can choose life instead of death. It's in the still here-ness that we can choose <laughs> we can choose celebrating over sleeping and weeping. These are the types of choices that stories are made of. These are the types of moments and miracles that change us and change our families. Your children catch it. Your friends catch it. Your parents catch it. Your neighbors catch it. Then they just don't hear stories. They can live them. And through the retelling of them, we can all see God's glory. So my question for you is this. What story are you choosing for you and your family right now? What story could be told? Revealing God's story doesn't have to be fancy or done with big dramatic moves. It looks like sharing your table with a stranger. It looks like encouraging a single mom by watching her kids for free. It looks like becoming a small group youth leader at your church and helping non-Christian kids figure out who Jesus is. It looks like being a man or a woman of God on a daily, consistent, same direction, obedience kind of way. It's an eternally epic story. And it may not seem that impressive to you. It's just your life, right? But the reality is, is that As you're sharing your story, 
God is doing something in the midst of it. In Romans 8, the message paraphrases it this way. You don't own, oh, that old life, one red cent. Get on with your life, not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, asking, what's next, Papa? Our spirit meets his, and we discover who we really are. It's in the we're still here moments we begin to recognize the story, God's story, can be our story. The truth is we need your stories. They are what make the next generation believe that this book of stories is really the breath of life, is really the word of God. Think about it. It's because of people who have really lived then and now, ones we see breathe up close, that cause us to see that God is revealed, that God is real in the lives of imperfect people. The story of redemption unfolds in us through Jesus. It's the very reason why we're still here. You have a story to tell. I'll leave you with one final story. Secondhand Lions is a movie about a little boy who goes to live with his two great uncles. His mom has abandoned him for another scuzzy man and left him to live with two men who have never been married or had a kid. The rumor was that they were rich, though they didn't ever live like it. The family assumed it was from robbing a bank. It was, as the story unfolds, the uncles buy a lion as a pet from a traveling salesman. And before the boy, stories of their time in Africa start to unfold. Great, fanciful stories about outsmarting a sheik and rescuing a maiden princess. (laughs) Almost too remarkable to be true. The boy grows up and stays with the two brothers. They are a family. He even makes them stop doing crazy things so they can live to see an old age. At the end of the movie, the boy, now a man, gets a call from his, about that his uncles have died. And the sheriff says, you won't believe this. The man gets there to find that his 90-year-old uncles have driven a World War I plane into a barn upside down, and they never had plane licenses. CNN came to film it and then said, well, they died with their boots on, the sheriff says as he leaves. Then a Middle Eastern oil company helicopter comes and lands in the middle of the barnyard and out steps a Middle Eastern man and his son. The two men's eyes meet. The Middle Eastern gentleman looks at the boy, now man, and says, you knew these men? And he says, yes, they were my uncles. My grandfather, a wealth, very wealthy sheik, always told me stories about the only two men who ever outsmarted me. And I saw it on the news, and I had to come and see it for myself. The man's son was also alongside of him. The Middle Eastern man's son looks up at the guy, pulls his pant leg and says, Mister, you mean to tell me that the men in those stories really lived? And the nephew, who once asked those very same questions, 
at that little boy's height said, yes, they really lived. With a far-off look in his eye, you can see story after story after story that instantly came to mind. The truth is, is that you must tell stories of Jesus, of how he died and how he rose and how he lives. We need to tell the stories of men and women who died telling about him. You need to live risky, faith-embraced, danced lives intentionally revealing God's glory through your story. Think about it for a moment. What stories could you tell of Jesus and how he's changed your life? Of that day on the road or that one conversation with a friend or in the hospital room and you saw God did what only he could do? Or standing at the graveside of someone who or the years Christ pursued and worked and awakened your heart and the salvation and a wholeness and healing that happened in you? Some of you, your stories just feel like on repeat over and over and over again. But the reality is, is that even those stories hold power. Even those stories can begin to have new life in them. Some of you, your stories are painful and awkward to tell. But I want to tell you that the most difficult stories, the ones that really cost you something to tell, the ones that are a serious risk, those are the stories that are the most powerful. Because they cost so much, the value is so deep that other people need to hear those stories. Those are the stories that will impact people more than any others. And sometimes we shy away from telling them because they're hard. But it's in those places that God works and moves. And light comes in through the jail cells. The chains are broken off. It's in those places where God reveals his goodness and his faithfulness. So even if you think you have nothing to give and that your story isn't interesting enough to share, I promise you, you have a story to tell and it's a good story if God's in it. God has placed people in your community, in your life, coworkers and friends and kids and neighbors who will connect with where you are and what God has revealed through you. Wherever you go, the grocery store, to school, to work, You're telling a story. So we are still here. The story is still unfolding. We need to be living lives that others will tell stories about. Seeing God in us. You are still here. For a reason. To tell the story and to add to the story. You have a story to tell, and you have a story to live. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the ways in which your story can be ours. We pray that in our still here-ness, 
that we will surrender our fear and our apprehension and our temptations to not be vulnerable and real. Lord, we pray that our stories will be ones that invite others in, that we will be people who are collectors of stories, that we will be people who surrender our lives to look more and more like your story every day. God, we pray that as people look at our lives this week, today, that they will hear your story, that they will see the story of resurrection, of what was once dead and is now so deeply alive. Thank you that you are not a dead God, but that you are alive and living and actively moving and working within us. May this be a house of stories where your story is told and the ones of glory are redeemed and healed and restored. May we tell them to our children and to our friends and to our neighbors, give us boldness and words, God, to go from this place and at lunch tell a story of you. You are good, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your story and that you want us to be part. We are honored and amazed. We stand in awe of you, Jesus. Amen.